Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times. Once again, bringing you science and stories from all of the coolest places on the planet, quite literally. Yay! You're here with me again, Jack Buckingham, and today we are bringing you something a little bit different, a little bit extra. You know, we sat down here at Polar Times and we thought to ourselves, what is the year 2020 missing? How about some aliens? We've had pretty much everything else. I mean, let's face it, none of us would be surprised. I have not one, but two guests to bring you today from an incredible group called the Polar Alien Hunters. And of course, not talking about extraterrestrials here, we're talking about invasive non-native species. So these are organisms which are introduced from one place to another accidentally or by humans or just by through their own movement. They will explain it much better than I do. So stay tuned for Polar Aliens. How do they invade polar, pristine polar places? Why are they a bad thing? And most importantly, what you, yes, you can do to help. Everybody can, it turns out. So stay tuned to find out how. As a little sidebar, I just have to apologize for the my audio in this coming up interview. I was having a bad audio day. We have some just a few teething problems with our recordings here. I can only apologize if you can't hear some of my questions very well if they're a little bit muffled but the guests sound great and you know it's them you've really come to listen to so and they do a really good job of communicating their science they didn't even need to be in the room it's a good one today i uh, apologize for that and we'll be bringing you much better audio in the future i especially apologize to uh, one of my guests because she went to such great lengths to make sure that her own audio sounded great I believe she had a little coat over her laptop so that it didn't echo in a meeting room really impressive dedication uh, Polar Times salutes you, friend, friend of friend of the podcast. So yes, sit back, relax, and thank you for joining us once again on Polar Times. Okay, everyone, please welcome to the stage my guests today. They are Ali McCarthy and Jasmine Bartlett. Hello, both of you. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thanks for coming on to Polar Times. So this is the first bit of the podcast. We like to call it the icebreaker, which is where we get to view our guests. Tell us, who are you and how did you come to Polar Lux? I guess one of my current job descriptions is a polar alien hunter. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that later. But that means that I study invasive species or non-native species in Antarctica. And I'm a marine ecologist, but I guess I fell into a polar life actually when I was doing some work as an undergraduate. This was just to earn some money while I was studying science. I worked for a research group that did worked on archives. And one of the archive collections was of Philip Law, who was the first director of the Australian Antarctic Division. And so in amongst my days learning science, I was also spending a lot of time poring over letters and all kinds of other documents and, and objects related to his life as a polar explorer. And he was actually still alive at the time. And so part of my job also was going to his care home that he was in at the time. He was 96 when I met him and collecting more information that he wanted to have documented in his archive. And 
even at 96, he was one of the most formidable people I think I've ever met and, you know, wouldn't wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, and we'd sort of go out for coffee and he'd hire a taxi. And, and I remember he said to me like, oh, yeah, you know, there's been a lot done in sort of geology and chemistry in Antarctica, but we need more biologists like you. And I probably didn't need telling twice. <laughs> um, and then I thought, oh, well, I guess Antarctica or Antarctic biology is a lot of marine biology. I don't really know anything about that. So then I was almost at the end of my undergraduate degree and thought, oh, I'd better take as many courses as I can in marine biology and actually went back and took some second year or one second year subject and tried to focus as much on the marine biology side of all of the other uh, subjects that I did and found that I loved it. And so after that, I was, yeah, had my heart set on a career in Antarctic marine biology. Wow, there you go. That's an incredible story. <laughs> and how about you, Des? How did you come into the polar world? Uh, mine, mine isn't as cool as Arlie's, but uh, <laughs> I was just watching TV one day and I thought Antarctica looked really cool. <laughs> but no, I um, I grew up in Cornwall and I was always obsessed with everywhere that wasn't Cornwall, um, which luckily enough is most of the world but anywhere that was extremely different so cold windswept places it, it just really really drew me in and I watched Frozen Planet I decided there and then as I was watching uh, a segment on, on Antarctica that that was where I wanted to go I wanted to find out more about that place so I looked through the film credits afterwards to see who the cameramen were because that's something that I thought would take me there um, and I saw Doug Allen on the list so I, I looked him up looked at what his career trajectory had been and that was the first time I ever heard about the British Antarctic Survey because he was one of the zoological field assistants down there before he became a camera person and then I started to really think about how I could get myself to Antarctica I knew I wanted it to be a biological route so I went and did a zoology degree and then that led to a master's that was specifically in uh, polar sciences up in Svalbard and uh, from there it was yeah all the way south <laughs> Okay, fantastic. It's interesting, isn't it? I think Frozen Planet was probably one of the first times I saw polar stuff on TV as yeah. well. And it's one of my favourite documentaries today. Oh, it was yeah. wonderful. Yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was, absolutely. It was accidental that I ended up uh, becoming a polar alien hunter too. Um, I had a wonderful PhD um, that was on a specific invasive species and it just ignited something in me. Um, it, yeah, invasive species as a biological path are really great because you can get down this really applied route and like start overlapping into policy and it, there's all these other little like strands that you can pick up on through that route. So it's, it's a great way to be a polar scientist, I think. That leads us nicely into the next session. Obviously, you two are here today to talk about polar alien hunters, which has nothing to do, obviously, with the aliens out of space. We're not uh, talking astrobiology here. What is an alien in the terms that you both work with? So an alien um, is essentially a, a non-native species to uh, a region. So that region could be a particular island in Antarctica or a whole biogeographical region of Antarctica, or it's come from perhaps temperate Europe and has come into Antarctica. And it can be anything, any species. It can be viral, bacterial, it can be a marine species, an insect species or a plant species. And as much as we like to think that Antarctica may be a pristine wilderness, it is not because we go there. And wherever we go, we take 
these aliens with us accidentally and are the spaceships that transport them there. So we use the term aliens because it's a, it's a bit of an all-encompassing and it came up as a bit of a, a, a joke that our jobs are essentially alien hunters in polar environments. So that's where the polar alien hunters came from. Yeah, it's a fun idea. So Ali, you specialise more in marine, so you've chosen in your more uh, terrestrial stuff. Mm-hmm. So how did you guys meet and come together and start? Alien hunters. We met first at a student symposium at the British Antarctic Survey. We sort of realised we were working on similar topics. And then a little bit later, there was another session at Bass on um, invasive species. And we both presented and we thought, oh, we should do more work together. And at the time, <laughs> Jess was writing um, an article for The Biologist. And so I came in on that as well. So we already had that connection. Polar alien hunters started from a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> because Jess tweeted that she thought, oh, I feel like I'm a polar alien hunter. And then I must have liked it. And I think you mentioned a comic as well. Yeah. And then I said, oh, yeah, I've been thinking of making a comic about my research as well. And then another friend who's also a, a polar scientist at Bass uh, had been making some doodles for some of her work. And I just said, oh, Alice, do you want to come and help me and Jess make a comic about being polar alien hunters? And she was really enthusiastic. So we thought, oh, we'll do it. And then it sort of snowballed from there (laughs) because we realized that actually invasive species or the potential for more invasive species in Antarctica is a serious issue. And the way to prevent it becoming a real problem or to minimize the risks of um, invasive species becoming a real problem, we need everyone on board not just researchers like us, to be looking for alien species. You know, this is in the Velcro of your jacket if you're going south or, you know, all the different ways that biosecurity can be implemented. We really need everyone on board. And to do that, we need to try and reach out to everyone. So it became from the idea of one comic, we then started talking to a lot of other groups about how how can we make this a larger project to help everyone understand why we need We need to have biosecurity measures and try and get people excited about doing it as well and understanding why it's important to protect Antarctic environments as well. Just to clarify, do you both specialise in Antarctic regions or Arctic regions? And is there a big difference in the kinds of invasive species that they suffer from? So I study in both polar areas. My PhD was focused in Antarctica um, and it was focused on insect species or one insect species in particular. Um, But my research in the future will also probably be be on invertebrates down there. In the Arctic, I look at invasive plant species in Svalbard. Very similar things, as Ali was mentioning, uh, concerns about uh, biosecurity and how we can monitor the invasive species that are there and how we can prevent even more coming through. But what we find in Svalbard, which is very different, obviously, to Antarctica, both geographically and regards to human history, is that the level of disturbance in Svalbard has implemented huge amounts of alien plant species and also invasive invertebrate species that live in the soils with the plants too. So you see higher biodiversity of earthworms, for example, where you get these alien species. And we see more alien species in Svalbard because they were farming there um, until not that long ago. And they were importing soils as well as all of the forage, so hay with all the seeds that come with the hay and everything as well. So it's a very, very different landscape and, uh, you know, says a lot about the past. Past Svalbard, we're going to try and at least 
curb any further expansion of it. And in the same vein in Antarctica, as it's going to warm up and as more ice-free areas um, occur and as tourism may increase and certainly researchers' presence will increase, uh, we want to prevent it from even getting close to anything like the high Arctic with regards to alien species establishments. Are humans the main vector, right? the main spaceships for these aliens to get from <laughs> one place to the other? I imagine that might be true for terrestrial species, but less so for marine. Is that the case? Um, so the main, and you've, you've hit the nail on the head with vector, that is, that is the word that we use um, in, in invasive species science. But yeah, ships and are the main, main vector for marine invasive species. And this is true for all around the world, um, but also, also true for Antarctica. So Antarctica has these you know, amazing ocean currents that circle around the continent and they they don't stop everything from getting through but what might take you know three it might take three years say for some uh, seaweed and things that are rafting on the seaweed it might take three years from that to get from a sub-antarctic island all the way around to making contact with the antarctic continent so reaching land again but a ship might make the same trip in three days and so for species, especially ones that are not going to be associated with kelp rafts, they, they wouldn't survive being at sea for that long. So most non-native marine species are actually, because they're coming from ships, a lot of them are then biofouling species. So they are in the natural habitat, they would grow on the seabed, they would grow on rocky shores, that sort of place. Instead, they think, oh, wow, this ship is a great place to live and they live on that ship instead. So often they're not species that have life stages that spend a lot of time at sea, um, certainly not three years. So the species that we're likely to see coming in are very different than those that might be able to make it just through ocean currents. And even then, not many would make it that way. And we've probably seen the ones, like the ones that would make it are probably already there. So anything new has probably come from a ship. Right, so they, they literally like stick to the ship's hull, yep. and they, I believe, you probably get some as well. That's, um, you know, in like ballast water because obviously ships take on water in one place and then, you know, eject it. When yeah, so ballast water has been one of the major sources of marine invasive species around the world, but it's less of a concern for Antarctica, and it's for a couple of reasons. The first one is that most ships don't need to release ballast water in the Antarctic region. Ballast needs to be released when a ship takes on cargo. And generally, they are taking cargo to Antarctica. And yes, ships will also be taking waste away, except they are also using fuel. And fuel, of course, is heavy. As they use up fuel, they may also need to take on more ballast water. So because of that, very little ballast could be or might need to be released in Antarctic waters anyway. And then on top of that, there are also good regulations for when and where you can and can't release ballast water around Antarctica. And the management organisations for Antarctica have been very, very good and very proactive about ensuring those ballast water guidelines and recommendations are in place. And there's now also a worldwide ballast water convention. And there are guidelines for polar regions. However, it's biofouling is a very difficult thing to manage because for large ships, the only time that they can easily be cleaned is when they go in for maintenance. And that 
only happens every you know year to 18 months maybe longer for most ships so that it's it's very impractical to to sort of clean the ship every time it goes to Antarctica that's not going to happen so we have to think of other ways to to try and manage biofouling. Kind of a holy grail isn't it the anti-biofouling paint? Most of the ships now have a resin coating which again is going to get scraped by ice. If, if they're ice breaking ships not all ships that go to Antarctica are ice strengthened um, or not heavily strengthened so they may not be doing any ice breaking anyway but the, actually that's one of the the interesting aspects of how we need to think about uh, biofouling and invasive species differently in the polar regions to the rest of the world. Because if ships go through sea ice a long way offshore, it may be or will likely be that a lot of the biofouling organisms will be scraped off the hull. And so if that happens a long way offshore and the organisms that are scraped off need uh, shallow water species or they need to be near shore to survive then you may well be reducing the number of species that could make it to Antarctica. However, if the ships go through ice close to shore, then you're actively removing them close to an environment where they may be able to survive. And it depends on what species. They won't all survive uh, being Mm -hmm. scraped off a hull. But one of the concerns is that if, if ships aren't going through ice, or going through ice close to shore, then actually they might be depositing more invasive species or non-native species than they otherwise would be. What are the worst species that have invaded polar places? Like, are there any classic, iconic case studies? The first one that springs to mind is actually an Arctic species because we don't really have any good examples for the Antarctic marine environments. There have been observations of non-native marine species in Antarctica, but not any that are established populations or to the point where they might be causing problems. The red king crab in the Arctic was introduced as a fishery into uh, the European Arctic from North American Arctic. So there's a, a lot to the rest of the story that I'm not going to go into about you know, the pros and cons of introducing species for fisheries or farming or, you know, (laughs) that side of the story. But these crabs are really changing the uh, nutrient cycling in the sediment, in the seabed. And so they are very strongly changing the community composition of other organisms that are there. And so they definitely have the potential to cause a big impact or invasive species can. But in the Antarctic, even though we don't have any examples, there's been some very interesting work done looking at the amount of sea ice and therefore the amount of light that gets to the seabed in determining whether or not you have a seabed community that's dominated by large macroalgae, so big seaweeds, or whether it's dominated by animals, so things like sponges um, and anemones and those sorts of things. And essentially, if you have less ice for a shorter amount of the year. So if you have more days without ice, then you reach a threshold where over the course of a year, there is enough light for macroalgae to survive, which means that you can have these shifts from sort of animal-dominated to algal-dominated seabed communities. That is a complete shift in what then could survive in terms of introduced species. So In temperate areas, there's generally a lot of algae and a lot of these large seaweeds. 
So a lot of the species there, if they rely on those seaweeds and they get to Antarctica, even if they could survive, they might not be the correct habitat. But if we are seeing a shift in areas to be having less ice or fewer days with ice around Antarctica, we could see a shift to a habitat that then actually allows more species to come in. So I think that's one of the really interesting things I'm hoping to keep an eye on over the next few years. And how about in the terrestrial world? What are the worst or um, most notorious invasive species? I did my work in South Georgia. So there's, uh, you know, they're big on their biosecurity and invasive species. And then the one there is Bittercross, which is the one I just tried yes. to eradicate. Yeah, particularly bad one. It it is pretty bad, and it's actually really high up on the horizon scanning list for potential species that will likely invade the Antarctic proper in the future as well. Um, So most of the highest risk species that could invade in the future will be probably marine species, lots of mussels and things like this. But on the terrestrial side of it, it's flowering plants. And detritivores, so anything that's chewing up um, the soil, that's turning over litter faster, is a big problem. As Ali alluded to, like once these species start being able to alter ecosystem composition and therefore make it much more likely that other species could invade behind them. So they're kind of pioneers, essentially. So any, any detritivore is uh, kind of pioneering in some sense in the polar realms, but what's concerning is that when these do establish which is what my phd was on these invasive uh, invasive detritivores is that they change soil biogeochemistry to the point that it turns what i always say would be the like the the chemical fertility equivalent of pavement crud into something that's a little bit more like compost so when you think about the impacts that that could have as to what could establish in the future it becomes quite problematic because typically antarctic soils um, in the antarctic proper not like some antarctic south georgia but in the maritime antarctic and continental antarctic areas Soils are very, very nutrient poor. Um, So it's very, very hardy cosmopolitan species that can establish there. Um, So we've had a couple of invasive grasses established in Antarctica, Poa anua and Poa pretensis. Um, And there's been some some pretty good eradication programs because when you see a grass, you can pull it up by its roots and it's uh, a lot easier to manage. But if you miss a tiny, almost microscopic insect larvae that's in the soils, you might not know that it's spread beyond the point of management until it's too late. And this is what's happened on Signy Island, um, which is in the South Orkney archipelago, where in 1960s, um, a little coronamid, so a non-biting midge, got introduced to the soils there outside the research station. And it's now spread to cover an area almost a kilometre in square and eradication would mean complete destruction of the moss banks which are some of the best examples in the southern ocean so it's completely impractical but in the meantime it's changed the soil chemistry so it's now quite nitrogen rich and it's it's is actually where you find it in really high densities it has similar levels of nitrates as you get from the seal colonies so these tiny tiny things can have a massive impact and that's just one species and we're seeing incidences of these small little invertebrates so springtails are a very high risk uh, invasive species for the same reasons you don't notice you're moving them around they're very easy to not notice for decades while they set up home slowly munch away slowly change the chemistry of the soils 
and yeah, it become really problematic. And in the Arctic, it, it's again, vascular plants and invertebrates are the big problem. So you have earthworms where you've never had earthworms before. You have huge flowering grasses or, and, and like big plants like cow parsley establishing in the tundra. And these can be crazy impactful. Yeah, yeah. So these just uh, these tiny creatures which are in like a little bit of soil on the mud on your boot. Exactly. Or, you know, like a, a, like a seed, like you said, that's in the Velcro of your, your coat yeah. that uh, you wouldn't have noticed. So, yeah, it's super easy to, to spread them around, isn't it? You've mentioned these ecosystem shifts, both marine and terrestrial. Is that a kind of worst case scenario impact from an invasive species? I mean, obviously people will have heard of things like, oh, in the UK, it's, you know, grey squirrels were introduced and then they eradicated the red squirrels, which is an obvious, this happens and this happens. So why should, why should we be really concerned about invasive aliens? So they can cause extinctions and islands in particular are very vulnerable to that. But that's true of anywhere that's very isolated and has many, many endemic species and you're introducing a new perhaps predator. So some of the really famous examples where we've actually managed to avoid an extinction involve rodents on sub-Antarctic islands. So there's, we mentioned the eradication program in South Georgia, which has been successful, Macquarie Island, has also had a really successful eradication program. And this is, this is saving really iconic seabird species like albatross. Invasive species are problems anywhere, but particularly places that are isolated. And Antarctica is a classic example. Whether you're looking at terrestrial or marine species, there are so many species there that are found only in that part of the world. And in terms of the seabed community around Antarctica, there are no predators that crush or drill. So there aren't any, you know, you get things like crabs that will eat stuff off the seabed by crushing it and then eating it. You don't have any predators like that. And you don't have any predators that will drill into the shell of something else. They tend to be things like, well, some fish, but also like anemones that will just engulf things whole. So the prospect of accidentally in introducing an entirely new form of predation to Antarctic seabed communities is very scary. We see the same thing in terrestrial environments. So this uh, invasive midge that I was telling you about on Signy Island, it is actually native to South Georgia, but nobody's seen it in South Georgia for decades. And we think it might have actually been wiped out by an invasive beetle. <laughs> so we, oh, we have a tricky... Yeah. So I'm desperate to get there to go and look for it to see if it's okay, because if it's not... Then in a strange twist of fate, the only example of the species that might be left on the planet is the invasive population on Signy Island. And then there's all kinds of uncomfortable questions about conservation of an, of essentially a non-native species, um, which gets quite complicated. Then doesn't that sometimes, uh, you know, make it worse when you have that eradication idea of like, oh, let's introduce something else to predate and introduce species. <laughs> exactly. yeah. was, that the, was that the cane toad story in Australia, I believe? Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, it is. Um, they were introduced <laughs> to uh, keep a pest beetle species yeah. under control then, that came in with the sugar cane. Um, and but, it became a pest themselves. Yeah, speaking of eradication, marine invasive species are essentially impossible to eradicate. Mm-hmm. 
that's it's never it's not really a viable option at all and i don't know of a single successful eradication of a marine species certainly not on a grand scale you might be able to get rid of it from a very very small area but even then it's really hard so that's one of the reasons why i think it's really important that we try and get on top of this topic now and do whatever we can to at least minimize the risk of species coming into antarctica because it's hard enough to or virtually impossible to eradicate marine uh, invasive species from areas where it's easy to access them and there are lots of people on the ground and and you can get out in boats and stuff easily that's a lot of things that do not apply to antarctica <laughs> it's difficult to get to it's not easy to access there aren't a lot of people there to to eradicate even attempt an eradication program so one of the concerns even with Antarctica is not just species coming in, but species moving around different Antarctic locations. And so for anyone that does any diving or even if, um, so many, many ships of the large ships don't go too close to shore. Instead, they'll use small tenders to move cargo or people onto shore, whether that's going to stations or field sites. And so each time those boats come out of the water or, you know, you've been diving and you come back on, onto the boat, if you're going to a different region, you can, you can clean down all your gear and make sure it's dried out, make sure there's nothing that you could be moving from site to site. And then there are ways that other parts of the world, so um, in New Zealand, in California, in Australia, they're managing biofouling on large ships coming in. And it's about having regular inspections and appropriate cleaning and appropriate documentation of where the ship has been um, and what it has had on its hull during those inspections. And so while we're certainly not at a point where we know enough about what could be coming into Antarctica to set up those you know, a similar sort of policy for Antarctica. There are examples in the world where some countries or some regions have been setting up successful ways of managing biofouling. So there certainly is hope out there. And even just during the course of my PhD, we've gone from a situation where there were maybe a handful of papers that mentioned the prospect of marine invasive species to Antarctica to potentially knowing a really having a very good start at being able to bring something together um, in terms of knowing. So a lot of my work at the moment is just trying to understand where do the ships go when they go to Antarctica? How many ships go to Antarctica? Where have they been before they uh, go to Antarctica? And these, these were questions that no one knew the answer to. When I started my PhD, I was going around so like, well, okay, where can we get this information? Like, surely someone knows this. And organizations or you know, like IATO or Camilla, or even Comnap, they know so much about what goes on for either tourism or fishing or national operations. But the issue of invasive species is the sort of cumulative effect of all kinds of activity. Mm -hmm. So if we only look at one or even two, then you just don't see the whole picture and you don't can't get a sense of where the real risk might lie. And so some of my work has been trying to bring together information on all kinds of activity so we can start saying hmm, maybe if we're going to look for invasive species we should look there and maybe if we're going to set up some kind of biosecurity station maybe this port just outside Antarctica is really important because everyone seems to come through there and I think it was that kind of mindset that also led us to 
um, thinking about polar alien hunters as a way of, you know, getting other people interested in, in looking for invasive species as well, because we need all hands on deck. Literally. And yeah, literally everyone <laughs> needs to be looking. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, because it needs, to, it needs to come from everyone. Yeah. And uh, Ali raises a really good point. Like it's not just tourists. Like there's the last season that was operative in Antarctica, there was like 50,000 tourists um, and forecast to be close to 80,000 for the following year. But then COVID happened, whereas there's only at maximum capacity is only about 5,000 researchers. And then you have the fisheries as well and uh, people who are going down there fishing. And so it's even though you have like this big disparity in numbers, it's it's not any one organization or what any one group of visitors problem. So researchers move around a lot more than tourists ever do. And they cross a lot of different biogeographical areas uh, than tourists ever do. And they're also more likely to be complacent because they're visiting quite regularly. So whilst there might be more numbers, there there are other things to consider. So we wanted to take an approach or we treat everybody equally and we try and create a campaign that doesn't come from any one institution or when any one organization whilst we have our own affiliations we don't work through their governance we are independent of our national antarctic programs so then we can reach out to everybody in a way that just says take personal responsibility no matter whether you're a tourist a fisherman or a researcher you know these are really simple steps that can prevent the introductions in the first place because as Ali was saying like once its it species do get established they're very very hard to get rid of and that's if you even do detect them so prevention first through biosecurity measures taken at a personal level and hopefully implemented widely as possible and then Early detection, rapid response is kind of the key phrase, EDRR. Like this is the way to help prevent invasive species establishment. And then if something does get established, we need to have support for regular monitoring of these species. So so we know where they're spreading, if they're spreading, if we can eradicate them at all. So there needs to be a lot more effort, but we can only do what we can do, and that's by making silly comics to just <laughs> really emphasize that personal responsibility at a biosecurity level. And uh, yeah, and as you say, spread the good word. And anyone yeah. could be a polar alien hunter. 100%. And I think it sounds like a fun thing to do, which yes. helps given that it is something that I do. But yeah, any anyone can do it. I mean, especially if you're going south. But even if you're not, it doesn't stop you you know looking at what might be going on or, or thinking more about conservation yeah. in, in the antarctic region or even you know what just anywhere really anywhere and also yeah. like if you're you know if you're planting things in your garden what what are you planting in your garden is it is it something yeah. that is going to cause a problem you know there are ways that you can be an alien hunter anywhere yeah um and we're hoping that we can share some of our enthusiasm for for looking for non-native species through polar alien hunters absolutely yeah, yeah. awesome and that's why i was kind of super happy to have you on Polar Times because that's what we really want this platform to be as a kind of way to bring these issues from the poles which are you know they seem remote and far away and on the periphery of everyone's life but just you know to at least get people to think about them. While we are a small team at the moment we are actually hoping in the next you know year or so to establish a network of researchers, policymakers, people working in the polar regions and looking at non-native species. So polar alien hunters may be a small team now, but we're really hoping to get 
as many people who work on these topics involved as possible from right around the world. As we said, we want Mm -hmm. everyone from, you know, whatever country you're based in or whether you work in tourism or fishing or research or supply, lots of supply ships go to Antarctica as well, or in policy, uh, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you because the way to addressing this, as we've said, is to get everyone on board and have it as a sort of concerted community effort. And to do that, we need as many people from the community involved. Absolutely. Awesome. There you go. So if you're a polar person or a polar scientist or a polar visitor in the near future, then definitely look up polar alien hunters to see what you can do and join their network. We've yeah, got a so mailing list you can sign up for on our website. Um, so join in. <laughs> it's not just you two who are in polar alien hunters, obviously. You, know, there's a, you say you're a small team, so who else is it? So we are... Uh, me, Jess, and Ali, so terrestrial marine. And then we've also got uh, Christy Hayer from the University of Surrey. And she is a psychologist slash behaviorist. And she has a really, really interesting uh, research area looking at how she can change tourists' behavior and basically turn tourists into conservationists um, through their experiences and their journeys, particularly in the polar regions. So she's been super valuable to have on board as a kind of a humanities and social sciences perspective on all of this because this is a, a people problem essentially and she's been a really valuable member of the team and we have our illustrator Alice and she's just brilliant she creates all of the amazing comics and illustrations that you see um, when you visit our website <laughs> and, uh, and then we have some other early career researchers as well that are um, yeah, quite busy with postdocs and and things um, silent partners effectively who are also active in Antarctic research and conservation issues and um, and yeah and hopefully once we get the network up and running we'll just keep expanding that and people can contribute through the network to our polar alien hunters initiative as well. I kind of imagine that it's easier to manage slash eradicate slash combat terrestrial species than it is marine which because you can kind of model and see terrestrial species and like map where they are, etc. Is that much harder in marine environments? Um, you can certainly, I mean, it depends so much on the organism. If they're right. sessile, if they're not moving around, um, you can get out there and you can do surveys. But anything that is a broadcast spawner, so this is anything that just releases eggs and sperm into the water and just mixes around in a soup and then they get carried off by currents you know they might not be getting carried hundreds of thousands of kilometers away but it might be that with you know before you can actually remove any of these organisms 10 or 15 kilometers up the uh, up the road up the coastline you know there might also already be uh, new populations and i think for pelagic yeah. species that's also a very I difficult yeah, <laughs> difficult world but even for brooding species so these are species that almost it's the opposite sort of reproductive cycle they just they keep their eggs close to them and brood them even even they can they can move around and it's it almost yeah like I said, I don't know that there's been a successful eradication of a marine non-native species anywhere. Uh, if you know of one, please let me know. <laughs> I'd love yeah. to say that there's been one successful story. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I'm not aware of one. And, yeah, it, it's very difficult to, to keep that. And partly also if you can get 10, 20 people out in a fairly short air, 
a small area picking weeds or, you know, looking for species on the ground, that's that's a bit easier than trying to get the same number of scuba divers in the water, (laughs) (laughs) which is largely what's required. And, you know, scuba diving only goes, or, you know, most people only go down to about 30 metres, maybe 40 metres. That is just the very, very, very top slice of the ocean. And the yeah, seabed goes down so much <laughs> I almost said that. <laughs> no, you should have gone for it, yeah. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's just so much seabed that we can't get to easily. And so then the idea of trying to eradicate something from a place that we can't even get to makes it almost impossible. In the terrestrial realms, the worst case scenario is that we get something that can fly. And that's happened <laughs> where the, uh, some um, uh, flying species, the winter crane fly, Trichothera maculopennis, um, came in some Uruguayan cargo uh, to the South Shetland Islands and it set up in a sewage system on the research station because it was so warm and cosy. And they tried to eradicate it from the sewage system and hadn't really realised that it actually got out into the environment and it can fly in ambient Antarctic temperatures, which... <laughs> weren't really expecting. So now it's everywhere <laughs> because it can fly. Oh, no. And then if you get yeah. something that can fly and can cross channels and like just hop island to island, then yeah. And yeah, you've really got to, yeah, a bit of a mess on your hands to try and keep up with that. I just wanted to ask another question quickly. What do you mean by the term biosecurity? The main biosecurity measure that most people will encounter if they've ever gone south, and it's essentially the, the only biosecurity measure for a lot of research stations, is washing your boots. So usually in a Vercon solution. Um, so any kind of measure that kind of just has a barrier between whatever biology you might be accidentally carrying on you and the environment outside of the, your your space essentially so we focus on trying to keep your clothes clean and like checking for velcro and things like this but the main source of moving species around terrestrially is going to be on your boots as well as your clothes so in the soils in the muds um, and i recently published a paper that looked at this boot wash this vercon to see that whilst it's a really good biosecurity agent against microbes and viral loads, which would threaten mammal populations, particularly penguins, for example, and the seal colonies, um, it does nothing to inhibit an invertebrate. So you need to be physically scrubbing with hot water as well as having the disinfectant measure on top of it. So that would be an extra biosecurity step to add the hot water to the, the disinfectant process itself so what we mean by biosecurity is essentially that measure that limits the spread yeah and it it can be anything and sometimes it is a measure that will be like okay we're at this point we need to make sure we we're not carrying any of these things with us Mm -hmm. and depending on uh where people our listeners have traveled uh sometimes going through airports you'll see bins where you have to put any fresh food maybe fruit that you brought with you because, and that's a biosecurity point to make sure you're not taking anything that could be diseased into this other area that you've arrived at. But biosecurity policy, as we mentioned before, for biofouling in particular, there's no easy spot where you can say, okay, at this point, ship, would you please just remove all of your biofouling organisms and then you can go through. (laughs) That's not viable. So biosecurity um, measures can also be, 
I guess, sort of non-physical removal, but um, keeping tabs on where ships have been mm-hmm. and when they were last cleaned and what was on their whole last inspection. So that's a different kind of biosecurity measure, but it still falls under that the umbrella. Almost like you might say a kind of track and trace for ships. Like where, yeah. you, where you've been, logging where you are, etc. Ab- absolutely. You That's... need an app. <laughs> you know, QR codes in all Antarctic ports. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you mentioned Antarctic ports. Um, one of the main sources of understanding where ships go generally, are, so there's maritime intelligence Um, providers and most of them provide port to port data but there have been quite a few studies that have come out you know a few good ones this year and also recently that have looked at this port to port data for shipping containers or other kinds of vessels Antarctica has no ports in these um, in these databases which means that anyone who has you know studied global shipping using a port to port um, database has missed out all of the Southern Ocean. Mm-hmm. And so part of my work has actually been saying, okay, well, where do the ships go? Can I make pretend ports so that then we can actually see where they're going? And yeah, maybe what I'm doing is a bit of a track and trace for ships. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> it's a really uh, excellent turn of phrase, very timely, but it is it is a really, really important point is that we can't really understand species if we don't have data on the pathways that are getting them to these places. So especially in these remote areas, like how are they getting through these big geographical barriers, these great winds and great currents? Like, is it just from us or are they coming in naturally? And if it is from us, how are they getting there? Is it through our clothes? Is it on ships? Is it on boots? And in Svalbard, we're looking at setting up a project that looks at one very specific pathway, and this is through hay. So there are a lot of dog yards in Svalbard as a result of the booming tourist industry that, are, uh, you know, everyone's going out on dog sledding tours. Um, there's also a stable there as well. And the dogs need hay for their, pad out their little kennels. The horses obviously eat hay themselves. And like I mentioned earlier with the previous farming, like this is the main vector for bringing non-native seeds into uh, an, the Arctic environment, into Svalbard. And you combine that, that pathway with... Um, the fact that the dogs and the horses, they're producing really fertile environments. Like if you've ever been to Svalbard or Longyearbyen and you've seen the dog yards, there'll always be a bit of a green slope down downstream effectively. That's all like the, oh, really? the dog kind of like waste that's just running off and it's really nutrient rich and it's just providing this really fertile ground. So you've got this combination of like, Extra fertile ground, as I mentioned earlier, is like a boon for any invasive species in a polar environment. And then you have the hay as a a pathway for these seeds to come in on top of it. So hopefully next year we're going to start looking at what is actually coming in on the hay, what quantities these species are coming in and how many are establishing and surviving in the environments there. So this is another you know, big step in that early detection, rapid response is pathway analysis as a preventative biosecurity measure. Are alien invasive species always bad? And then I would like to follow that up with how do you categorize an an alien species from, say, like a pioneer species? Could you potentially (laughs) argue, could you potentially argue that these, this, this movement of species, even though it's being made worse by humans, you know, we're still part of this world. This is just kind of 
a natural process. What would you what would you say to that? Sorry, that's a, yeah. a deep and double hit question. But no, no, no. It, <laughs> uh, it's one we get asked quite a lot. Is like, is is right. there like a is the you know could it be beneficial essentially? But it's it's like how it is with climate change. Like we are speeding things up, and ecosystems can't cope with the rate of change. It might be that there'll be some range expansion naturally, and um, with some species, certainly with the species on Signy Island I mentioned earlier, this midge, it might well if it could find a way to get to Signy Island, might make its way back south further. We do some physiological examinations and find that it would be very happy on the Antarctic continent, and it would likely expand in that direction. But we speeding up that process that's that's the problem ecosystems have no natural time to adjust to any of these potentially natural colonization events or things that would happen naturally in the first place but then we are introducing species that just can survive there because of pre-adaptations but probably would never get there and they can outcompete and in some cases just full-on predate these places but it is arguable you know sometimes change is good sometimes it's not but we know that invasive yeah. species next to climate change and habitat loss are the biggest causes of biodiversity loss and that's a really big problem yeah and i think not every alien is going to become invasive in the in the sense that not everything that we find as a new species in a new location brought by people and and again this is this is part of the definition that we work on is that you know, a non-native species, something that has been brought there by people, even accidentally, and not all of them are going to become problems. But when you just see one or two or a very small population, you don't know if that's going to become a a problem population or not. And when you're screening things on the way in, again, you don't know whether, oh, okay, we can let this one in because that one's not going to be a problem because you just don't know. And so that's why it's so important to try and stop all things coming in rather than saying, oh, this one won't be a problem. We'll let it through because we just don't know. And there have just been too many examples of deliberate introductions that have caused such problems, whether that's problems by biodiversity, ecological loss, damage to crops if there are, you know, pests and diseases, and that's just with the deliberate introductions. So yeah. the accidental ones can also cause big problems. And we have a responsibility. Antarctica is its the last continent on the planet that we haven't completely <laughs> destroyed with our kind of homogenization of species and our interventions and our establishment. So if, if we're going to prove that we can do this and we can act responsibly, um, this is our last chance to be able to do it, to be able to preserve an area, a region, a continent as as well as we can, given everything that's changing already. And it's such small things that we can do that can make a big difference. And by just normalizing the dialogue around it and raising awareness around invasive species and how many we're transporting and how they're getting there and more research in these areas, then hopefully we stand a chance of at least making invasive species not one of the things that can really change Antarctic ecosystems. Yeah. Awesome. So that's like, you know, there you go. This is one problem we can probably maybe fix relatively. Yeah. (laughs) It's not, whilst there are non-native and invasive species in Antarctica, we're not at the point where we have 36 vascular plant species established and, you know, complete tundra change like we have in some places in Svalbard. So we're trying to get ahead of the curve. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. 
so yeah, so for anybody who's interested in uh, the Polar Alien Hunters project, the initiative that we're starting, please visit polaralienhunters.com. We have a mailing list you can sign up for there and we'll start producing newsletters with latest research in invasive species and what we're up to as well. We're currently seeking funding and hopefully next year we'll also be establishing the Polar Invasives Network to bring together early career researchers working in in this subject in polar and probably cold region environments in general. And then in addition to the Polar Alien Hunters campaign, which focuses on Antarctica, if anyone's visiting the Arctic, they can visit stoparcticaliens.com, which is essentially a similar initiative run by the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research, where I work, before the Arctic. And there's some information there, just a, a short quirky video with a polar bear wearing a, a rather jaunty hat who can tell you about how to take personal responsibility steps in order to make sure that you are not uh, essentially a spaceship transporting aliens into the Arctic. There you go. And that was the Polar Blog for today's episode. Thank you so much. So, yes, thank you once again for listening to another episode of Polar Times. We hope to see you here back again. If you would like to get in touch with us to recommend a guest, someone you'd like to hear uh, as interview on Polar Times, or if you have any questions for polar researchers, then you can email the podcast. We have our new Gmail. That is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. That's thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. You can also tweet the Association of Polar Early Career Scientists at polar underscore research on Twitter. And uh, yes, but all that remains is for me to thank our guests. We have uh, Jasmine Bartlett and Ali McCarthy. Thank you both so much for, for joining me. I learned so much about polar alien hunters. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jack. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.